Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 107. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so great to have your company. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to start by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in April. A very warm welcome to Jacqueline, Erica, Jen, Yana, Amanda, welcome Wendy, Penny, Amber, and Kay Clark. I'm so very thankful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a book pack consisting of book one and two of Wendy J. Dunn's Falling Pomegranate Seeds series, The Duty of Daughters and All Manner of Things. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the devil and witchcraft trials in 16th century Scotland is Professor Michelle Brock. Michelle is Associate Professor of History at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. She's the author of Satan and the Scots, The Devil in Post-Reformation Scotland, and co-editor of Knowing Demons, Knowing Spirits in the Early Modern Period, and the forthcoming Routledge History of the Devil in the Western Tradition. She's also co-director of Mapping the Scottish Reformation, a digital resource for exploring the lives of the Scottish clergy. You can learn more about Professor Brock and her work, including op-eds and podcasts for a popular audience, at www.mdbrock.com. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Mickey. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. So I suppose a really good place to start would be by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So um, I am Mickey Brock. I am a historian of religion and the supernatural in early modern Scotland. So uh, my interests are quite broad. I teach courses on the history of the devil, uh, the history of the witch hunts. I even have a history of ghosts course at my uh, home university in, in Virginia. So I've been doing this work for about 15 years uh, since graduate school. And, and I love it. It's, it's a really 
fantastic gig that I get to that I get paid to study things like Satan so (laughs) that's all good but that is so so cool I love that that you're a historian of the supernatural I love that title I want to yeah you know some uh, sometimes people will introduce me as a demonologist which I'm not actually a demonologist that's a very sort of a specific term for for a given time period but I I do find that very amusing um and sometimes when people meet me they say you seem a little bit cheerful to be someone who studies you know the devil and calvinism and so forth but nonetheless (laughs) oh i love it all right so what sparked your interest in in scottish history and also in this sort of area of the supernatural that's a great a great question and it's one i've been asked a lot because it's not a sort of obvious course of study right most people are interested for example in the dissolution of the monasteries or the english civil war things that are a bit more sort of traditional in terms of the way we might approach them as historians and as students and and scholars in general. But from a young age, I was quite interested in in the the fantastical, the supernatural, the occult. Probably this was partially because I grew up, I'm from Texas, grew up in Dallas, in a community that was sort of broadly evangelical. And I think I was always interested in sort of perhaps pushing the envelope in terms of thinking about what could be believed, what existed within the realm of the human imagination. And and so from a a young age, I was always checking out books on, you know, werewolves and sorts of things. And then when I went to college, I studied abroad in Scotland. And of course, any American who goes to Scotland to study abroad automatically falls in love with the place, particularly if you go to, you know, Edinburgh, uh, which is such a beautiful and fantastic city. So studying abroad there, I learned about the Scottish witch hunt that Scotland actually experienced quite an intense period of witch hunting. Previously, I'd only known about Salem, you know, I'd read Arthur Miller's The Crucible in high school, as every American high school student does, but, but I didn't really know about the witch hunts beyond that. And so finding out about something I was already interested in, in this amazing place steeped in all of this history, right? Uh, that just clicked for me. And I, I decided upon studying abroad that I wanted to go into graduate school and, and get a PhD. And, and here I am. Fantastic. And yes, yeah, Scotland is so stunning, isn't it? It just takes your breath away. The beauty, the history, the people, yes. the things amazing. I totally agree with you. So Mickey, your debut book, Satan and the Scots, circa 1560 to 1700, The Devil in Post-Reformation Scotland. So that was published in 2016. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, sure. So so fundamentally, this book was the first history of the devil in early modern Scotland. And what I was really interested in is what did the Scottish people believe about the devil in the years after the Reformation 1560 through the 17th century? And I wasn't just interested in what people thought about the devil, but the ways in which those beliefs and those ideas actually impacted lived experiences of piety, personal identity, and, and politics in Scotland. So So that was sort of my starting point. What did people think about the devil and why did it matter? And eventually I became interested in this this question of a development of this shared cultural conversation about the nature of evil and, and what humanity's relationship was to that evil and how that played out in a variety of spheres. So I guess on one level, it was a book about, you know, reformed theology that is to say Calvinism and the role that the devil had in this place that was so thoroughly reformed following from the Reformation. But on the other hand, in a much broader sense, it was sort of a, a case study of, of the ways in which beliefs about evil can shape societies and change lives. That was also a really important question for me. Yeah, and I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what people in 16th century Scotland actually did believe about the devil and whether these beliefs changed or evolved throughout the century? Yeah, that's a great question. So so the book really spans about 150 years, right? As I say, from the Reformation Parliament, 1560 through the 17th century. And in terms of what people believed, in terms of the place that Satan occupied in the mental worlds of the Scottish people, we primarily have sources, as is usually the case, from elites, right? Uh, members of the clergy, often their spouses and family members, or just sort of various political elites in society, or educators educated, literate Scottish laymen and women who could write down their experiences. So we have sermons and we have spiritual diaries and we have some pamphlets and so forth that give us a window into what Satan meant to elites and some ordinary people. And the thing that I was really struck by in my research was just how ubiquitous people believed Satan to be. Early modern Scottish people believed they could encounter the devil when sitting in the kirk, hearing their minister give a sermon, and they might find an errant thought creeping into their mind 
that distracted them from the word of God. That could be perceived as Satan's influence. They might find themselves, you know, drawn to sinful thoughts that, that they would interpret as an example of their own innate depravity and the way that Satan crept in and built upon the human sin tendency to sin, right? Of course, Calvinist ministers love to talk about the total depravity of all mankind. That's a key core idea in, in Calvinist theology. And that really shaped how people saw their own relationship with the devil and with sin. They saw almost human sin and the devil as two sides of the same coin. You needed one to have the other. And so that's really important. I, I argue in the book that people often internalize ideas about the demonic and even sometimes thought of their own selves as demonic and fallen in this sort of post-lapsarian fallen world. So that was interesting to me. But then, of course, you know, people, the devil was ubiquitous as a figure that represented a range of external enemies. So, you know, obviously there is a lot of anti-Catholic, anti-Catholic fervor in post-Reformation Scotland, as it's the case really in the whole of Britain. And so people interpreted their political enemies and, and the sort of Catholic church as in league with the devil in league with the Antichrist. And that was a real object of scorn. But also people saw the devil in cases of witchcraft in their local villages. Villages. You know, many Scots, even if they never saw a sort of witch being executed, would have heard about these enemies of God in their midst. And, and people did believe these enemies were quite numerous. So really internal and external devils are all around for the pre-modern Scottish people. And this impacts how they move through the world and perceive a sense of, of threat to both themselves and their communities. And what about some of the other preternatural beings that people in the 16th century believed inhabited their world? I find this quite fascinating if you want to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, so one of the things that I think is really important to note is that in the pre-Reformation period, so you know, prior to 1560, the Scottish mental landscape, imaginative landscape is dotted with fairies, right? Fairy belief is really important within sort of popular Scottish folklore. You have elves are, are, are sort of well-known brownies, which are sort of um, ambiguous nature spirits that occupy some of the same spaces as fairies. You have all of these beings that we would sort of most accurately conceive of as sort of preternatural, right? So sort of operating somewhat within nature, but different from the usual course of nature. Um, and in fact, actually, according to Protestant theology, only God is supernatural. Everything else is sort of operating within the bounds, some ways of the natural world, which is why humans encounter these things in their own lives. But one of the things that happens when the Reformation comes to Scotland is that clerical authorities in Scotland really attempt to sideline a lot of these these beings, fairies, brownies, elves, these beings that are neither good nor bad. They just sort of are. They have these ambiguous roles. They can be friend to humans. They can be foe to humans. But to the Scottish clerical elites, it's either with God, beings are either with God, of God, or with the devil. There's not a sort of middle ground space that, that these beings can occupy. So there's this real demonization of beings like fairies and elves and brownies, things that had occupied the worlds of Scots. They're told by their local minister, well, that's not a fairy. That's actually a demon and you're being deceived. So in some ways, there's a, a removal of those gray zone creatures after the Reformation. And there's still quite a strong belief, isn't there, in fairies and other beings? Yes, absolutely. I should say this is by no means a complete eradication of mm. those figures, right? Ordinary people still continue to believe in things like fairies and other beings. And still to this day, that's true. If you go up to the Highlands, for example, you can hear lots of fantastic fairy lore. But I think for a lot of people, they tried to sort of navigate this sort of post-Reformation landscape and reinterpret for themselves what they thought they were seeing and encountering in their world. Now, I'm sure that a number of our listeners have heard about the witch hunts that took place in Scotland in the late 16th and, and early sort of 17th century. But before we, we dive in and explore that topic, it would be really helpful if you could just tell us why a person would be considered or labelled a witch at this time. And obviously, you've touched on the fact that the devil was kind of involved in this situation. So how exactly was the devil involved? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things I guess I should just say broadly is that people across time and space have believed in witches, right? Have believed in people with the ability to interact with the natural world in ways that produce magical spells, either harmful or benevolent, depending on all this. But it's really only in the early modern period that you have the development of this idea of a demonic witch. 
right? A witch that isn't just doing harmful magic known in this period as Maleficium, but a witch who is doing that magic at the behest and with the support and indeed the powers of the devil. So that's really the idea of the witch that emerges out of this sort of late 15th century context where you have sort of the solidification of this idea of the demonic witch. And that's the object of the you know, the object of prosecution and persecution for many folks in, in this period. So again, someone who does harmful magic, but they get their magical ability through a deal with the devil, through a demonic pact. And that, that by extension means that any sorts of magical practices, even if the, the, what the intent is, is, is reportedly benign, are interpreted as being demonic. And I should say that's actually not a new idea in the 16th and 17th century. That's actually something that Augustine wrote about how all magic um, was involving some sort of pact with demons, but it wasn't a commonplace belief really until we get into the later medieval period. So that's what a witch was. Someone did harmful magic yeah. because of the devil. Why was there that change in, in people believing that they were just doing magic or whatever to harmful and connection with the devil? How did that change come about? And who were the people targeted? Yeah, so two really great questions. Um, to take the first part, I actually spend weeks on talking about the development of this idea in my in my witch hunt course, just because people, I mean, people are like, how did people believe this? How did people believe that there were these witches running around, that they were legion, that they were entering into demonic pacts with the devil, that they were having sex with Satan and going to these wild witches' Sabbaths, right? How did people come to believe this? Ordinary people, as well as sort of, most of all, educated people who were spreading these ideas. It's a really important question of even how someone like James VI and I believes in witches, and I can say more about that later. So the way that it happens is really, I think, by two or three interrelated processes. One of the core themes throughout Christian history is this belief in underground satanic conspiracies. People who are meeting in secret, sort of almost operating as sort of an anti-church and doing all sorts of anti-Christian dastardly deeds. And that is actually a fantasy that people believed about the early Christians. There were rumors in Rome that these early groups of Christians were engaged in all sorts of orgiastic feasts and those sorts of things at the behest of evil spirits. That idea, those fictions about early Christians eventually get translated into Christian ideas about blood libel, right? A lot of anti-Semitic ideas focus on this, this sort of demonic conspiracy attitude. That will further develop as we move through the medieval period. And particularly, it will coalesce in the 11th, 12th, 13th century with fears about heretics. And then in, these period, in this period, you get all of these writings about how there are groups of heretics who are not just sort of lone wolf practitioners, not sort of lone wolf people spreading a bad idea, but rather underground sects of people seeking to overthrow Christendom at the behest of the devil. So you have this very long lineage of this demonic conspiracy theory, and it's a useful, movable fiction and a way to conveniently demonize one's opponents. And actually, you see modern expressions of this in the satanic panics in the 1980s and in the QAnon conspiracy, which is quite, quite popular on, on my side of, of the Atlantic. So that gets combined. I realize this is a somewhat long answer, but it gets That's combined nice, with, <laughs> with the increasing demonization of magic. So as the Catholic Church sort of grows in power and in control and develops as a reforming institution, trying to sort of get the behaviors of all of Christendom within its sort of orthodox umbrella, there's this increasing move to penalize and demonize any behaviors that fall outside of the bounds of that orthodoxy. So this increasing idea that all magic is demonic. So you get sort of this wedding between the demonic idea of the heretic and the demonic idea of the ma magic practitioner. And those fuse together over the course of the medieval era to create this stereotype of this easily identifiable witch. And a really important part of this, which gets to the question of who's the target, is once all magic is demonized, you have this vision that it's not only like the ritual magician or the learned heretic who might be engaged in these demonic deeds. It can also be the lowliest person who's still practicing sort of some remnant of a forbidden belief or rite or ritual. And once people start to see magic practitioners as servants of Satan, then the gender dynamic changed, right? Once witches are believed to be slaves of Satan, that's the language that James VI will use. And that that is one of the reasons why when you have that shift blaming women for witchcraft. And, and in Scotland, about 80 
80, 85% of those accused of witchcraft are women. Uh, and that number is fairly consistent with the rest of Europe. It sounds like they were almost made to believe that there were witches on your doorstep. They could be um, disguised as, as anyone really now, not just a person out there practicing magic. Yeah, I, that's absolutely the case. And, and I think this is an idea that elites developed, right? There's a whole body of literature that gets developed around this idea of how to identify and combat these witches. And over through the course of the trials themselves, these ideas get really popularized. Um, I think by and large, it's usually from the top that the role of the devil gets involved. Most ordinary people are just concerned with the harmful magic piece. They, yeah. they don't want their cow to get sick or their crops to fail. But elites really infuse this demonological narrative into all of that. And people do, in these moments of witch panics, get really fearful that even their old neighbor, someone who 10, 20 years ago gave them the stink eye and then for some reason their, their milk went bad or something like that, right? There's this real sort of slotting in of neighborly conflicts and so forth within this witchcraft paradigm. So would you say that people became quite paranoid? Were they looking, particularly looking for witches and, and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. It depends on when and where you are. So there are some places, right? And if we're talking about Europe as a whole, right? I'm talking about Europe had 100,000 people accused of witchcraft. About half of them European-wide were executed um, in the period between the late 15th and the early 18th century. It's quite a widespread phenomenon. And if you're looking at that broad European picture, there are moments in which the witch hunts are really intense, right? The heyday of witch hunting is towards the latter part of the 16th century into the early part of the 17th century. And there are places and times where you have 50, 60% of the women in a town or village, this is in Germany in particular, who get accused of witchcraft. And when there are those panics, that does absolutely mean that people are getting a bit paranoid. But there are other times and places where there's like one, one witch trial every few years. And then that's not really about a panic, but rather about the reputation of one individual, usually woman, who gets caught up in some of these beliefs. So there's tremendous amounts of variety. And in Scotland, there are some very intense years of witch hunting where they, I think you could describe there, as a, there being a paranoia. Yeah, I can see why you love this topic. There's so much to think about. So more questions. <laughs> oh, it's so just interesting. Come up. <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's great. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit more about how the persecution of witches was encouraged or enabled by the authorities or by the communities at the time? Yeah, so that's that's a great, a great question. So the way the witch hunts tended to actually operate is they they tend to begin and, and here I'll talk about Scotland specifically. So in Scotland we have about 4,000 cases of people named as, as witches in the records. We don't know for sure how many of them were executed because the records don't always tell us about the sentence, the, the final the final verdict, although probably around a half to two thirds, maybe a bit more. There are different estimations. There are a lot more Scottish witches than English ones, actually. If you're a woman in early modern Scotland, you're about 12 times as likely to be accused of witchcraft than your English counterparts. But the way that it works in the Scottish case is accusations usually start at the ground up. So someone accuses their neighbor of causing their husband to become impotent, right? People were quite worried about fertility. This commonly comes up. That complaint usually gets first heard at the local level. So usually in a sort of local church court known as the Kirk Sessions, right? So someone will tell their local minister, um, their local board of elders, and every parish in Scotland has elders within their Kirk. And that is where things get going. Usually these local courts, if there's a bear there, if it seems like there's something to this accusation, not just a one person slandering another, which sometimes does happen. Sometimes these local ecclesiastical courts are like, eh, I think y'all are just having a bit of a row. I don't think anything, anything is going on with witchcraft here. We're not pursuing this. But if they did want to pursue it, then those things usually got referred either to these sort of local justiciary courts that were commissioned by the High Court of Justiciary or, or the Par Scottish Parliament to pursue witchcraft allegations. So it starts at the local level, moves up and up. Most of these witches are tried at these local criminal courts that often use things like torture fairly willy-nilly to elicit the sorts of information they're looking for. And that's, I should say, also when it gets to 
the hands of the authorities, that's when the demonological narrative comes into that. And that the authorities, the church is very involved in the process of hunting witches. Your local minister was very likely, uh, if you lived in 17th century Scotland, to have had his hand in at least one witch trial. Um, so the clergy are a very big part of this dynamic because the goal is to create a godly society. Right. You need to purify society by eradicating these enemies of God, these servants of Satan. And Mickey, something you just said, just, um, yeah, I just want to clarify or just go into something a little bit more. And sorry to this might be, you might not have the answer off the top of your head, but I found it really interesting that you said that it was 12 times, I think, more likely for a woman mm-hmm. in early modern Scotland than in, in England. I can imagine that this is another, you know, two month course or something. But can you give us a sort of idea of why that is? I absolutely can. So there there are a couple of reasons why this is. I think a major reason is because of the prevalence of this sort of Calvinist theology, which was very invested in the idea of spiritual warfare, right? If you believe the world is sort of carved into parties of a small group of the elect, right? God's chosen people. And the rest are reprobate, right? The rest are predestined to hell prior to the creation of the world, right? That's that fundamental idea of double predestination. Then you have this very black and white militaristic view of things. Um, And Calvinists were really, really anxious about the role of the devil in their world for a couple of reasons. They thought the devil could, you know, tempt people in various ways. The devil couldn't actually tempt people to hell because that was predetermined, but the devil could tempt people away from the ways of God in a way that could invite divine wrath. So there's a lot of worry actually about angering God um, and about deserving God's punishment because he maybe followed a whim of Satan. So I think there's that real concern, but also Calvinists were really anxious about whether or not they were the elect or the reprobates. Right. That's a it's a very worrying thing to be told. God has chosen who's saved and who's damned. And the works that you do in this life don't matter. Right. They, they don't. And only God really knows. But you can search yourself for signs of salvation. And so this led people to really sort of be introspective about Satan and about sin, but also to look for evidence of Satan and sin in their neighbors. And there's this broader push across the board for godly behavior and a certain degree of social cohesion and conformity. That impulse is much stronger and more consistent in Scotland than it is in England. Um, The only time you really get a sort of similar wave of witch hunts in England is during the 1640s, when of course the Puritans are in charge during the sort of era of the English Civil War. Uh, So I think that is really important, that sort of dominance and prominence of a theology that's invested in the devil's role in the world. I also think Scotland has a number of other reasons. These local criminal courts that I mentioned that often tried the vast majority of Scottish witches, often the people who sit on those courts don't have a ton of training or a ton of oversight, which means they can be swayed by local prejudices, local ideas about a woman with a bad reputation. It also means they can use torture to a greater degree and in a more willy-nilly way than they ought to technically do, right? There are actually lots of rules all over Europe about not using and abusing torture too much. But if you don't have that judicial oversight from a centralized body, if you have this more decentralized legal system, then you can get away with these things. And more torture means more confessions. More confessions means witches na- accused witches naming other witches. And it spirals in that sense. And then the last thing I'll say about why I think Scottish Scotland has particularly intense witch hunts is, you know, the, the Scottish monarch himself, James VI in 1597 writes the only demonological treatise by any European monarch in history called Demonology. And he himself thought he had been a victim of of some witch hunts earlier in that decade. And so that, of course, is this sort of stamp of approval from the monarch. Now, historians debate just how impactful that was, but I certainly think it mattered in inspiring elites to pay attention to possible witches in their midst. So those are the reasons why I think it's more intense. fantastic. Also, I can't believe you yeah. had that old just sitting. <laughs> no, no, sure. Yeah. It's, and, and obviously the Scottish legal system is a bit different than the English legal system as well. So yeah, faci- it's fascinating stuff. Oh, it is. That's, that's yeah, a lot to think about that. And I'm just thinking the sort of <laughs> predominant feeling that I'm getting as I'm listening to you is one of real anxiety. Like I'm just imagining yeah. if I was a woman, especially living at that in that time, just from everything that you're saying, not only am I Mm. sort of reflecting on my own self, but I'm looking around and wondering what people are thinking of my own behavior. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, I think it really is. And and again, I mean, historians debate just how much of that 
anxiety about the devil was felt by ordinary people. Um, certainly, you know, clerical elites and elite women were really worried about this. But, you know, even at the sort of level of the lowliest peasant, they were really concerned about harmful magic. They were concerned about their livelihoods. And I would really argue but that by the time we get to the 17th century, when there have been some significant witch hunts already in Scotland, people almost implicitly associate the devil with any argument or accusation about harmful magic. And if you're living in a community where you've seen a witch publicly executed, we have to remember that these witchcraft executions were public things. And the confessions of witches were often read, you know, to an audience of people who were there. So they would hear that this woman that they had known had actually made a pact with the devil right, had actually done all these dastardly deeds. And of course, that is going to inspire a lot of fear at certain moments in, in Scotland's history. And, and that holds true for Europe more broadly. Yeah. And just on the confessions, obviously, this is a very tricky thing to assess. But is there any evidence to, to point to people really believing that they were in a pact with the devil and that they were a witch, um, rather than a sort of forced confession through torture, etc.? Yeah, so I think there are two ways to answer that. I mean, first, the vast majority of witches confess because they are tortured. Um, one of the most common tortures in Scotland is actually sleep deprivation. And of course, we know the extent to which people, I mean, any of us who go a yeah. couple of nights without sleep start to experience some of these symptoms. So I actually think there are some people who start out thinking, I'm not a witch. What, what, are, you, what are you on about? How could I possibly, how could you, you know, accuse yeah, me of this? Yeah. But over the process of a fairly lengthy trial, and some of these were quite lengthy of, you know, lots of sleep deprivation, lots of intensive leading questions, often being fed some of these demonological narratives and scripts by the people questioning them. I think there are some who started out thinking they were innocent and by the end of things thought, well, maybe if I'm experiencing all of this, maybe if these people are telling me I've done this, maybe I am indeed a witch. You do get some voluntary confessions. And they're not very common, but you do get them. And they puzzled historians, right? Like, why would someone voluntarily confess to being a witch? And there are a range of explanations that we can think of. I think, you know, some of these individuals may have been experiencing a certain degree of, of sort of mental illness, although historians are, are rightly reticent to sort of diagnose people in the past that they can't observe. But I also think ordinary people had to some degree, at least, internalize the idea of their own sinfulness being deeply connected to the devil. They could think about, I mean, everyone has bad thoughts, right? Everyone thinks things they shouldn't think. And one of the things about this sort of godly state in Scotland is that you are told, you were told that you're not only supposed to control your words and your actions, but also your thoughts. That's a high bar. And even if an ordinary person didn't understand the complex theology, I think, and, and I think historians have diff differing levels of agreement on this, but I think if you are going to Kirk on Sunday and hearing the minister thunder on for hours about Satan and human depravity and the way that the devil is always going about like a roaring lion waiting for you, right? That does seep in. And maybe you interpret something that's happened to you through this demonological sort of framework, right? Or through this script. So, so that's a, a kind of complicated answer to yeah, your question, no. but um, no, it's but hard it's, to know. It's interesting, yeah. yeah. And some, there are some people who are doing some really interesting work on, on reading witchcraft confessions. So I, I, I think the scholarship is really growing on this and hopefully we'll be able to understand the mental worlds of, of some of these witches and their own perception of what's happening to them better as, as time goes on. Yeah, such a rich and complex inner life they had. It is, they? Yeah, it is. It's incredible. <laughs> now, you gave a statistic earlier about uh, that women were predominantly the ones yes, targeted yes. or accused of witchcraft, but that I imagine that there were some men. What do we know of men that were involved with witchcraft? Yeah, so I think that actually the first thing that I, I will say about this is just to give you a couple of reasons why I think women were so overrepresented um, because it's not as it's not as simple as this was a patriarchal society, which it was, right? There's no doubt um, that patriarchy was the water in which every person in early modern Britain and beyond swam, right? That that was the state of things. So I think that's sort of part of it. But at its core, witch hunting was about hunting witches. It wasn't actually an attempt to get rid of women or to attack women. Sometimes sometimes that idea gets expounded upon it in various important ways, but that's not really the case. Most people who are hunting witches believe they're trying to hunt witches. So the question is, why did people think most witches were women? 
or that women were more susceptible to being a witch. And there, I think that again, that I'm, I'm a historian of religion. So I think the theology had a lot to do with it. There was absolutely this emphasis on the story from Genesis um, and of the experiences in the garden of Eden, where Eve was purportedly tempted by Satan working through the serpent, which in, in that sort of retelling brings about the downfall of man. So there's this idea that women are inherently more susceptible to the devil. They're weaker in body and in spirit. Um, and a lot of it dates back to this sort of original guilt of Eve. Now, random fun fact, there's nothing actually in that scriptural text that says anything about the serpent being Satan. That's actually a later second century reading of that text, but it becomes the dominant one, which associates women with the devil from the outset. So if the question was who in your society was more likely to be tempted by Satan, who in your society would be willing to enter into demonic pact because they don't actually have any power otherwise? The answer by and large is women. Now, as, as you point out, there are about 15% of those accused of witchcraft who are men. Most of the men who get accused of witchcraft are in some way associated with a woman who's accused. So a father, a brother, right? A close relative in some way. So they're often accused by proxy of, of their association with a woman who's accused. That's not always the case, but that would be the preponderance of them. I wanted just to hear a little bit more about the people that were actually doing this hunting. Yes, so, sure. And, and how they'd go about identifying. Was there some sort of mm-hmm. manual they were working off, you know, to identify and prosecute and follow those steps? How did that all work? Yeah. So I'll answer this question first, sort of generally speaking about Europe, and then I'll say a few things about the Scottish case in particular. There was a robust and flourishing corpus of works about precisely how to do this, right? Because of the invention of the printing press, right, in the mid uh, 15th century, there is in the later part of the 15th century, this proliferation of texts about how to identify witches and how to hunt them, how to get rid of them. Um, And actually also all of these demonological treatises about what did witches do? Where did they get their power? How did they have sex with Satan, right? People were very fixated actually on that particular part of it. And these this demonological literature informed what clerics and other elites were looking for when they went after witches, right? In some ways, they were had already been told what to look for, what to ask, what to seek. And then when they had a sort of accusation of harmful magic in their local community, they had this sort of broader witch paradigm to fit it into. So there is almost, I mean, you can almost think it about, it, about it as an academic literature, right, about how to identify witches and what to do about them. And there are lots of famous, really important examples of of those demonological treatises. So that's the sort of broad sense of things. People had the ability to read these things and to pursue it. And I can talk a little bit about the sort of types of evidence and things they were looking for in the Scottish case, if that would be useful. Yeah, that would be great. Great. Yeah. So, so in Scotland, and this, again, some of these patterns hold true for the rest of Europe, some of them don't, but the goal is to get a couple of things. Ideally, the gold standard, what you really want is a confession, right? Because that with a confession, you can move to convict. And there you go. You have your witch. Often, if you've tortured a witch enough to get a confession, you'll also get other witches named. And that is also seen as a really critical piece of evidence. If, if a woman who is accused of witchcraft and tortured and confesses to witchcraft, they will off, they often named other women they had seen in meetings with the devil. Because again, it's not just a lone witch idea. It's that idea of that demonic underground conspiracy where witches were legion. Other than the confession, as, which I said, as I said, was the real goal to get, neighbor testimony makes up the bulk of some of these witchcraft trial records. So neighbors talking to authorities about something their sort of local, local, a local woman that they've had a negative relationship with, something she'd done over the course of years. And it's interesting in reading these testimonies, these accusations, is they do span sometimes like 20 years, right? People recollecting that 15 years ago, I saw X person walking down the street and this happened. And the power of suggestion, of course, is really critical there because if this person gets branded a witch or has that reputation, then you search your memory, which we all know memories are tremendously faulty. But those testimonies were seen as very powerful or at least powerful enough to justify the use of torture through which to try and elicit this confession. Um, And this is one of the reasons why actually most women in Scotland and elsewhere in Europe are older when they get accused. It's actually not so much, we don't mean some of them are widowed, we don't actually know the marital status of a lot of Scottish witches, but we know most of them were above 40, which mm-hmm. I don't find, I do not find to be an advanced age. Any, no, any me longer, either, but, 
but at the time, right, when life expectancies were lower, was quite a bit older. But by that age, you've been able to amass a reputation. That was actually more important than whether you were widowed or rich or poor or whatever. The key thing was that you developed this bad reputation and that gets sort of teased out in these, these accusations. And the last thing I'll sort of say that happens in Scotland that I think is really interesting is people searched you for the devil's mark. That was another type yeah, of evidence. That was, that. Yeah. So there was the idea that when you entered into a pact with the devil, you basically had a ceremony of reverse baptism right? Satan would anoint you as his servant. He would take you out of the book of life and write you into basically the book of death, his book. And as part of that, as anointing you as a servant, you would get a devil's mark. This is what people believed. And there was a lot of literature about this, again, dating back to some of these ideas about heretics. So there were professional witch prickers in Scotland who would sort of travel from town to town and volunteer their services, their paid services, I should say, not really volunteer, um, to these sort of local, local courts that are trying the witches. And you would look for the devil's mark by pricking any sort of unusual mole or extra nipple or anything that looked a little bit strange on the body. And you can imagine in a society where some degree of modesty is valued, right? Certainly not as much as the Victorians, but but there was still some sense of yeah. needing modesty. This could be tremendously traumatic and dehumanizing to have your body poked and prodded. But if there was a mark that was found that could be pricked with a pin and didn't bleed or didn't necessarily cause you to cry out in pain, and of course, some of these people are sort of traumatized or sometimes there are parts of your body that don't have the same sensations as others, that could be seen as definitive proof of the devil's mark. Oh my goodness. How awful, awful stuff. Isn't <laughs> yeah. That? Yes. yes. Stuff. It, it is. It really is. People went through some really profoundly painful experiences. I mean, the witch hunts are fascinating, but they're also a tragedy. And yeah. I think it's always sort of important to remember that. Absolutely. And so Mickey, let's say a, a woman's accused of being a witch and the, and the authorities are investigating. Is she still living at home at that time? Or is, or is it kind of like they're arrested in a sense and, and, and yes, locked they're, away? Yeah. They're arrested and, and put in jail. Yeah. In jail. Um, and Yeah, these trials have different lengths as well. Um, If it's a sort of intense period of witch hunting where there are lots and lots of witches being accused, the trials can move more quickly. But there are others who just languish languish in jail for for quite a long time. I think actually the, the pace of these trials is slower than a lot of people imagine. So they are in these sort of fairly squalid conditions in, in jails. Okay. And so if they're found guilty, what are the punishments that were used at the time? Yeah, sure. So often we have this impression of all witches being burned. I, we can think, thank Monty Python for that. And that, you know, uh, that, that, that fabulous sketch about, oh no, she's a witch. You know, I'm not going to try to do the accents, but anyway, <laughs> um, that I think has led a lot of people to think that all witches were burned. That's true. For example, in the Holy Roman empire, most witches are burned. What is modern day Germany essentially and beyond that, but are burned alive. That does happen there. Um, in Scotland, the primary mode of execution is strangulation followed by burning. So you were strangled first and then your body was burned in places with English common law. So England and in Salem, witches were hung by and large. Um, in Salem, there was another person who was pressed to death, but in general, that, that tended to be the punishment. So in Scotland, strangled and then burned. And okay. of course, burning is, is the punishment for heretic, right? Yes. So it's also in some ways showing you that witchcraft is not just a crime of harmful magic, but also mm. a heresy. And so that's a really thre- important. A threat to your very being and the whole state. Yeah, that's, Absolutely. that's really, really interesting. So you mentioned some texts before. That sounds like there's a lot of interesting texts, but there yes. is one that people may have heard of, which is Malleus Maleficarum and the impact. And so I just want to talk about the impact of mm. printed material on the sure. witch craze, if you like. Absolutely. Um, so it's hard to gauge what effect that had on people who weren't literate. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll confine my answer to to folks who were part of the group that was writing this literature. And one of the things that's critical to know is that texts like the Malleus Maleficarum, the Malleus Maleficarum is written 1486 by a member of the Catholic Church, a guy called Heinrich Kramer. And he's sort of a a nasty fellow. He had been involved in some witchcraft persecutions that hadn't gone his way. And he writes the Malleus Maleficarum essentially actually to prove that there are all these witches and they must be hunted in this way. And the Malleus Maleficarum is this egregiously misogynistic text, actually, even even more so than you might imagine, talks about women being carnal and lustful and not trustworthy and so weak and all of these things. Works like that 
were printed and very widely disseminated all over Europe. And you have to remember at this time, most European elites could read multiple languages. So there was this ability to sort of converse with people from different parts of Europe, particularly the European continent. That's where this, this literature really develops. And those, I, those ideas in the Malleus, they get repeated in future works. So one of the things that you have happened, right, is another demonological author, say two decades later, reads the Malleus, reads other texts that were produced in the late 15th or early 16th century, essentially cites them in his own work and says, well, as Kramer demonstrates, yada, yada, yada. And in this way, demonology becomes a self-legitimating discourse, right? Because people read it, people take as truth what they read in these, these accounts. And what's interesting too is that I always tell my students this, that demonology presupposes doubt. And by that, I mean, all of these authors, when they're writing these texts, they know that what they're writing sounds kind of bonkers, right? They know that it sounds fantastical and hard to prove. So they devote loads of time, right, to teasing out how the mechanics of sex with the devil happen, right? What's the devil's member? Like all of these things, they're, they're written about mm. quite seriously. And the reason is, is basically to present this as a fact, as a narrative that's unassailable, that's, that's demonstrable in these various ways. And those texts do get encountered and read by some of these folks overseeing the witch hunts in various regions, you know, throughout, throughout Europe. And then when they try an accused witch, they ask them questions that in some ways are driven by this demonological literature. So did you make a pact with the devil? Did you sign his book? Who did you see at the Sabbath? Did you copulate with Satan? All of those things. So they're following this script. Then eventually the witch confesses to those things under torture. And a future author of a demonological treatise says, well, as shown by this witch's confession over here, this is true. So it's like a snake eating its tail. It's, it's, it's self-reinforcing in a really profound way. The second body of text that I think I should just mention um, that's worth noting is there are laws on the books about witchcraft as being a sort of capital crime in most places in Europe, right? There's a Scottish Witchcraft Act that's written three years after the Reformation Parliament in 1563 that basically makes, you know, witchcraft a capital crime that can be prosecuted in a certain way. And there are these laws, as I say, all over Europe. Some of them don't get taken off the books until, you know, the early part of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So this is a very legalized process too. And I think that's important. Mickey, you mentioned that numbers are obviously difficult to pinpoint. Do we know, you, you, I think you said 4,000 cases mm -hmm. roughly in Scotland, mm -hmm. and you think maybe around half executed? So we don't know definitively because we only know the final sentence of a fraction of those cases. Now, if you extrapolate what those final sentences are, you get to about two-thirds executed, but some historians have said that number is probably ultimately lower. Some say it's probably ultimately higher. So we really do not know precisely how many were executed, but it was a significant number than, say, in England. We, we can sort of demonstrate that. And last question that I wanted to ask you is, what do you think is one of the greatest misconceptions about the witch craze or witch hunts, um, about early modern witches in particular? Yeah, so I think I think the biggest misconception is probably one that became popular in really the early to mid part of the 20th century, which is the idea that the witch trials were really about people in positions of power, particularly men, trying to eradicate this underground pagan fertility cult. That is one of the most lasting myths about the witch hunts, um, that there were these people who were just trying to practice this old pagan faith and the authorities were trying to suppress it. Well, in reality, actually, most of the people who are accused of witchcraft, basically all of them are in the case of Scotland, good Protestants, in the case of various other parts of Europe, good Catholics, they're within the faith that's prosecuting them. And they're not trying to practice these organized underground pagan rituals. And in fact, most people who are accused of witchcraft probably weren't trying to practice any sort of magic at all, right? They just have, there are some who may have dabbled in herbs and so forth, certainly that's true. But the majority just get swept up in this because of reputation, because of local social dynamics, because of religious fervor and religious zeal. So I think I think the idea that there was this underground pagan fertility cult is one of the most lasting. And I think it's challenging because I think that that narrative has been a real source of inspiration for modern day Wiccans who will sometimes see early modern witches as their sort of ideological and social predecessors. But there's actually no connection between those things. So that can be a bit tricky. But the other one other quick myth that I do think is worth saying, I think it's a myth 
or at least a misuse and abuse of the idea of the witch hunt for people in positions of power to claim that they're victims of witch hunts. Because fundamentally, the victims of historical witch hunts have been those without real access to power, who were victims of the powerful, who believed, the victims of the powerful who believed in this sort of conspiracy theory. So I think it's really problematic when people in positions of power claim to be victims of witch hunts, because that sort of subverts the power dynamics that are at the core of what the trials were. Mickey, I think you've gotten yourself lots of new fans after this episode. I'm just, I'm totally fascinated. I could keep asking you questions all day, but I'm going to pause there because at the end of our episodes, and I know we've been, it's talking Tudors, we've been more talking um, Scotland, but that's all right. We play what I call a little game of 10 to go. So these are just 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So are you ready to do that? I am. All right. Excellent. What do you think is the best way to start the day? Coffee. Coffee, yeah. I think that'll be on lots of people's lists. (laughs) Fantastic. And what is a book that's currently on your bedside table or one that you're reading at the moment? Well, I just finished um, a book called Such a Fun Age by Kimberly Reed, which is a fiction book that I I really loved. Um, And that was that was fascinating. It's about female friendship and about race and class. And it's it's really fascinating. So I actually read a lot of fiction for fun, almost exclusively for fun. I read I read fiction. Yeah, I imagine you read intense stuff (laughs) that you read. Yes, work. I did recently read Say Nothing, um, uh, which is nonfiction about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And that was fabulous. So oh, definitely okay. recommend that by pa- Patrick Radden Keith. Really good. All right. Noting that down. I always get lots of my um, TBR list gets really long after every episode. Uh, what was your favorite subject at school? Is history too lame of an answer? No, um, <laughs> that was, yeah, that's great. Yeah. No, history, history definitely was. I also took um, in college as an undergrad student, I took a course um, on the literature of human rights. And that class changed my life. And I mean that in all seriousness. I, I, we've read all of these works by folks who had been dispossessed, depressed, and, and figures of resistance historically. And it, it, you know, we read books by Indigenous authors and Muslim women and Malcolm X. And, and I had never thought about the way that structures of power operate in history. Previously, I sort of had had this erroneous idea of history is just individual actors doing things and making choices. And of course, that's absolutely part of it. But there are these structures of power that underpin most of how history progresses. And history is often the story of people rejecting those structures of power and seeking to change them. And this course on the literature of human rights, um, it just really shook up what I think was an, an erroneously sunny view of much of the past that I had and made me think more deeply about, about so many things, the, the history of my own country, um, and, and well beyond that. I'm going to move great. to something, <laughs> something more lighthearted by asking yes. you if you if you could join a past group or a band, so a music group, if you oh. could become part of one, which one would you like to join? doesn't matter if you have oh, no gosh. musical talent. <laughs> no, well, I don't have any musical talent, but I do love music. Oh gosh, what would it be? Well, I maybe the band because I love the band and it would be nice to have sort of worked a little bit with Bob Dylan. Um, uh, Fleetwood Mac would be very yeah. cool because their music and shows seem super fun. Yeah. I, that's a, I'm going to have to think about that, but, but yeah, I, I, I'll responses. go with the band for now. Do you have a favorite app or a sort of app that you can't kind of live without that you can share with Twitter, us? Twitter, which oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not that's... proud of, but I got, <laughs> I got very sucked into Twitter. Um, during some of the political turmoil yep. in 2016. And I have to say, I have been able to get off of it. So. Yes. so I am on yeah. Twitter. I'm actually quite active on Twitter if any of the listeners are yeah, interested in sure. my hot takes on demonology or whatever it is. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. I do follow you on Twitter. So that's good. I know I go through stages with Twitter where I kind of, yeah, where I need a break from it and then where I'm fine Indeed. again. So I think when I you need a break, you just take your break. <laughs> and, and Mickey, what's something that keeps you awake at night? Well, a lot in the last, mm, in the I can last imagine. year. I mean, I'll, I'll be transparent and say that right now, some of the conversations on my own uh, university campus, I teach at a university um, that's named after Robert E. Lee, um, who was a Confederate general and an enslaver in the U.S. and who's been the subject of lots of questions about monuments and lost cause mythology and the way that we choose to whitewash the past in certain ways. And so there's a lot of debate about whether or not my university will change its name. And I, I absolutely right. think they ought to change its name for a whole host of, of really, I think, important reasons related to justice and equity. So that keeps me up at night, actually, is wondering what the fate of this institution that I'm a part of, 
that has brilliant students and faculty and just a, a wonderful community in a lot of ways, but an institution that has historically been quite rooted in white supremacy, what what will they do sort of moving forward? That that That's an honest answer yes. to something that very lately is keeping me up at night and, and really in my head relates to how we talk about history, the stories we tell about the past. I mean, history is something very different than memory and commemoration. And we have to be careful and thoughtful about how we talk about those things. When you're choosing to change how you commemorate something and who you choose to memorialize, that doesn't actually do anything to the history. History is what the work of historians and and the interested public and podcasters. And memorialization and, and commemoration is a question about what we choose to uphold and what we choose to honor. And I think people collapse those things unhelpfully. So yeah. I've, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people would probably agree that the past 12 months, so there's been a lot to keep <laughs> us up at night, that's for sure. Yes, indeed. What question would you most like to know the answer to? I'm not so much interested in knowing about the future because I think that that, you know, I, that is not that much of interest to me. I'd rather just sort of move forward yeah. um, in, 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 the, in sort of my life and in the future. But I would, I would like to know what the answer to certain major problems we have are. Mm. So I'd like to know how, what the best way to alleviate experiences of poverty that, that yeah. people are sort of grappling with. I, I'd like to know what can change hearts and minds in a really effective way. And history has lots of helpful answers to these things, but, but probably I would like the easy answers to solve the questions. On a more sort of basic level, I'd like to know what my pets are thinking. I'm interested <laughs> yeah. in animal psychology. That's my lighter answer to the story is no, what does the yeah. cat want right now? You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you if you have any pets, obviously you've got some pets. I do. Um, I do. I have a cat currently and we have a, we had a dog, but we had to recently say goodbye to him, although he was a saint. So, and we are, we are currently already looking for another puppy. So we have a big Labrador sized hole in our hearts. They are. And now I'm just stuck with the cats who I always tell my, who is cute, but I tell my partner that my cat is a demon and <laughs> that I know about this. I'm quite an expert. In <laughs> so, and my partner will say, he's not a demon. He's an angel. And I say, even the devil can disguise himself as an angel of light, which is a quote from Corinthians that I come across in my research a lot. So there you go. <laughs> Very good. And Mickey, is there a trend or a sort of fad that you wish would come back into, into fashion? If I, if I paid, if I pay enough, I don't think I pay enough attention to fashion to really, to really know what that answer would be. But I love, I love sort of 1940s oh, sort of hair too. and dresses yeah. and things like that. So, but I think that kind of is coming back into style. So I don't know. I'll tell you what I hope stays in style. And that is not having to wear real pants when you're working. I enjoy my sweatpant life, my COVID wearing sweatpants and house dresses life. So I would, I would like that to remain. Um, so. Yeah. And, and I'm totally with you with the 1940s. Anyone that knows me knows I absolutely love the, the fashion and, you know, oh, it's the, fabulous. Oh, it's, it's great, but I haven't mastered the hair yet. I don't know if you've had a go at any no, of the hairstyles. I've got, I like, have I, not. I bought some equipment. I even got like the pins and whatever, but I haven't oh, tried it yet. I, Yes. Well, my hair is naturally wavy, but it doesn't yeah. look like the 1940s style. So yeah, I think you could do it though. I can see you with I a little try. I few pink try, curls. You know. <laughs> and very last question. What is something you're looking forward to in the near future? Working at coffee shops again. Um, I love to write at coffee shops. That's where I have done just the bulk of my work and writing. Um, I've had the vaccine, so I oh, okay. um, am fully vaccinated, but I'm, you know, I've, I'm hesitant to fully get back out there into the sort of really, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, it's going to be a slow re-entry, yes. but when I feel comfortable working at coffee shops again, which should be very soon, I think it will just be fantastic. The, the noise, the smell of coffee, starting my day with that, yes. and really just getting yeah. a lot of writing done. Um, really, really looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. Well, fingers crossed that that is something we can all do really soon and get back out mingling and traveling and learning and experiencing Absolutely. stuff. This has been such a pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And I can't wait to hear about all your other projects that are happening. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.